Well, we just heard a doozy of a lesson from Luke. It's among the harshest sounding passages attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you think that I have come to bring peace? No, I tell you, but rather division. Households will be divided and parents and siblings set against each other. As the arc of the gospel story unfolds, isn't Jesus supposed to be the Prince of Peace? You know, in the second chapter of Luke, isn't that what the angels announced to the shepherds who were abiding in their fields, watching their flocks by night? And at the end of the gospel, doesn't Luke report the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples and says, Peace be with you. The story begins and ends with peace, but here in the middle, Jesus hyperbolically says he brings fire and division. Honestly, it briefly crossed my mind to change the lesson out for a hot Sunday in August. It is really hot, isn't it? (laughs) But then I also know that there is a very great gift here for the spiritually alert person who's on the lookout for real food matching their real need. In other words, this passage has the plain beauty of speaking about the real world, the world all of us actually live in, as opposed to some prettified place where people idolize niceness masquerading for righteousness. And this seems especially important in these days, doesn't it? We need a spiritual perspective at least equal to our need. And remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as he tells this bit. And we know what awaits for him there. I'm guessing that if someone never read the Bible would still know what happens to Jesus in Jerusalem at the end of his life. His way in the world does bring enough conflict for the powerful to want him dead. The Prince of Peace, they want him dead. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? that the so-called Prince of Peace should be thought dangerous enough for public execution. How does one who organized his life around loving God with all of his heart and mind and soul and loving his neighbor as himself wind up nailed to a wooden crossbeam, hoisted high so all passers-by could see the inscription above his head that sarcastically states, King of the Jews? Well, you know, the answer is rather obvious when you stop to think about it. Since peace and justice and righteousness are not the norm in our world, it stands to reason that someone who advances that program is going to make waves, especially someone who understands the spiritual project involves truth-telling as opposed to making nice. 
You know, as you know, it is very easy for religious organizations to suffer the accusation of hypocrisy since they claim adherence to a set of values that are further out than their reach. In other words, we Christians, for instance, are damned by our first principle, our seeking to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. We say that's our fundamental allegiance, but we're quite fickle in our execution of this commitment. The only thing that saves us here is the humble admission, the acknowledgement that this, in fact, is the case. In other words, like Jesus, we say the hard truth about ourselves. And in this case, our own fallibility. But then also like Jesus, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews had it, we lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely so that we can run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. (laughs) That is wild theology, friends, I have to tell you. It's wild and spectacular, and one of the reasons I'm bullish about the Christian faith surviving its current travails in the Western world. Why are we able to run with perseverance? Well, in part because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, so many have endured so much while striving to love God and neighbor that we too are inspired to continue this work. That's the real meat on the bone for the church. Every time the church, or even just a lone Christian or two, manages to live the truth of God's grace, the kingdom of God advances. It advances by the insistence that there is a better way, a greater human dignity that's right there but for the claiming of it. Jesus would have his listeners know the full truth, however. The radical love and justice he championed would cause disruption and division because of a human addiction to selfish and abusive patterns embedded within the status quo. Tell me you don't see that writ everywhere in our culture today. And think of any of the great justice causes over the decades and centuries. For instance, the classic American exemplar of slavery wasn't the resistance to the better way, to a greater human dignity thwarted at every turn? Didn't this resistance involve economics and politics and culture and religion? Didn't Christian slaughter Christian? Didn't advancing the cause of loving one's neighbor as oneself create fire and division? And aren't we still mopping up residual fragments of this injustice? I'm thinking that Jesus wasn't prescribing division as much as describing an inevitable outcome given the entrenched powers arrayed against love's advance in the world. And it began with the powers arrayed against him. Given such long odds for the way of Jesus in the world, one would think It would have died right along with him. But instead, love of God and neighbor was set loose in a brand new way among people who were touched and then transformed by love's irresistible grace. 
we call this resurrection. Or the enduring love at the heart of all things. And here we are today having this conversation. Honestly, it seems nothing short of miraculous. And the great cloud of witnesses now counts us among, among their company. Several years ago, my doctoral work focused on the intersections of leadership and forgiveness, which led me to interview so-called high-profile leaders on this topic for my dissertation. The participants ranged over a wide arc of human endeavor, including politics and diplomacy and military education and business. Among them was Bob Carey, former senator and governor from Nebraska, then president of the New School for 10 years here in New York City, downtown, and at the time of the interview, running for the Senate once again back in Nebraska. Following an exchange concerning the leadership of Nelson Mandela, who Mr. Carey said served as an astonishing exemplar of the power of forgiveness, he addressed the situation in the United States after 9-11 when, in the aftermath of the catastrophe, quote, the country had an eerie sense of purpose, unity of purpose. I think it disappeared because we got motivated by vengeance. We hated them. We're going to get the bastards. I'm not saying they shouldn't have been brought to justice, quite the contrary, but vengeance is terrible foreign policy, terrible foreign policy. Vengeance is something that should be discouraged and it's hard. And then he stepped back from his own comments and he described a situation from his earlier days in Nebraska that concerned the murder of a three-year-old child. The family was horribly devastated, distraught and wild with rage over what to them seemed to be a light sentence for the murderer who was eventually released, after, released from prison after achieving, among other things, a college degree while incarcerated. They were beyond livid. At a parole hearing, Carey said, the hate in that room just gave you the chills. But some years later, he ran into the mother of the slain child at the Indian reservation in which the perpetrator had grown up. So I said, Denise, what are you doing? Oh, she said, I'm volunteering here now. I work in the schools up here because I think it's possible that maybe I can prevent something like this from happening in the future. And Carrie stopped and then said quietly, that's forgiveness. And you know, Steve, she wasn't pinched. It was all gone. And he said rather incredulously, the hatred had completely left her. And he had told me this story to illustrate 
the interrelationship in his mind between vengeance and policy and closure and forgiveness. And I then add, this woman's behavior is disruptive in the manner Jesus describes. It doesn't follow the right script. She gave up on hatred and vengeance and took on the work of love. Ann Curry was another interviewee, the former anchor for the Today Show, who told of a powerful encounter with a young woman who had been kidnapped by men who had killed her parents. They took her and they chained her to a tree to become their sex slave. And finally, when they had no more use for her, they left her for dead because she was not worth anything. But some villagers found her and rescued her and took her to a hospital, which is where Curry met her. It spoke with her before her initial surgery to repair her very broken body. And then afterwards, she spoke with her again, and and Curry reported that she told me what had happened to her, and I said, do you want revenge against those men who did this to you? And she said, no. All I want to do is to rise from this bed and thank the people who rescued me, perhaps feel a mother's love again, and work for God. After a long pause, this story had clearly touched Curry deeply. She said, forgiveness does not mean that you easily come to forgiving everything that happens to you or to others. It's a path. And it was unforgivable until she forgave. It was absolutely unforgivable what happened to her. And yet, she forgave. That's the lesson, I think. That is the beauty and the glory of what is possible in our kind. This young woman was only 17, and one could wonder and marvel at where this grace came from. This young woman had become part of the cloud of witnesses for Ann Curry, you see. And after hearing and brooding and writing her story, she's part of mine as well. And now, if you'll have her, she's part of yours, too. Part of your cloud of witnesses, pointing the way to the beauty and glory of what is possible in our kind. Because we see the opposite so very much more often. 
Somehow the way of Jesus seeped way down deep inside of this young woman. Friends, importantly, notice how these stories are embedded within real time. (coughs) Real persons enduring incredible suffering. They're not made up. True stories about real persons in real time enduring incredible suffering, reaching out further than would normally be expected all the way into profound human dignity and the things that matter most of all, all the way to that destination. And you sense instinctively how disruptive (coughs) this seems to the status quo. They're breaking the rules. Stories like these stir up a deep-seated desire to become a bit disruptive myself for the sake of the things that matter most of all. And maybe you sense this too. Do you feel the movement, the potential, the powerful tug of hope that's more than a match to the worst that life can serve up? And just there, you see, we find our place in the great forward movement in claiming God's kingdom now as a present reality in the face of many adversities. This part of the great cloud of witnesses running the race set before us with perseverance, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith.